in just three weeks, we will celebrate that which should be the most joyous occasion in the Christian church. Of course, I'm referring to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, sometimes referred to as Easter. The term, of course, takes some unfortunate meaning from pagan usage. However, for the last who knows how many centuries, the term Easter has always meant a referring to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That first day of the week, that first Sunday, that first day of the week, following His crucifixion, death, and burial, Jesus arose. And we'll celebrate that, as I said, in just three weeks as He came forth alive and appeared to many. As with so much of Christianity, however, this day has been affected, it has been attacked, and it has been trivialized by so many fronts. It has been attacked by those who call themselves educated. Those who say, well, we know. Nobody can rise from the dead. We have education and we know that there is no way possible that a dead man could become alive. It is a scientific fact. It can't happen. And they say that we cannot trust the New Testament account because it is written by men. It is a mere fable. It is a mere myth. And nobody can trust anything written that long ago. Although they themselves trust a lot of things written long before that, this they can't trust. Even though there's a lot more evidence for this than most of their so-called historic facts. They say we can't trust this. The reality is that they're a little more than atheists with their own personal anti-Christian agenda. And we dismiss them and rather trust God. But it's not only been attacked, it's been trivialized by many in our day. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has been transformed into a day when a bunny comes. A bunny comes to your house carrying a basket and leaves colored eggs, jelly beans, and somehow or other a chocolate replica of himself. That's Easter. We like eating those chocolate replicas, do we not? But it leaves so much out. It, it just leaves children in the place where they think that the resurrection of Jesus is a myth or it isn't even really associated with this silly notion of a bunny coming. The Easter bunny. What do children think? What is the real meaning of Easter, Mommy and Daddy? Well, the real meaning of Easter is a, a rabbit? Well, the real meaning of Easter is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Son. Well, then what's with the rabbit? But parents aren't even teaching children. It has been trivialized. They miss the magnificence, the wonder, the splendor, the meaning of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is probably the single most important event in the history of the world. Now, you have to be careful when you say that theologically. Because somebody says, well, what about 
the incarnation. Because without the incarnation, you couldn't have the resurrection. I know, I know. So one of, certainly, the greatest events in the history of the world is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it has become all but ho-hum. Even to many who claim to be Christians. Well, I don't really want that. I don't want that to be the case. I don't want the desires of the evil one to come to pass, even as at the time of the resurrection of Jesus, as He appeared to the disciples, what were the the scribes and the Pharisees saying? They stole His body while the soldiers were asleep. Lies! And this is what is happening in our day. Lies! It's an Easter bunny! It's not the resurrection of the living God! I don't want that. I want us to understand and to know the meaning of the day. Not just the day coming in three weeks, but the event that took place almost 2,000 years ago. I want the wonder. I want the splendor, the magnificence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's redemption. I want that to be of great importance to us. And so for the next several weeks, we'll be building up to that event. First, by considering several answers to one of the greatest questions ever asked in all of Scripture. I want you to look at that question with your own eyeballs. If you would, please turn with me to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. And what we're going to do over the next several weeks is to answer the question put forth by the psalmist here. I'm only going to look at the first few verses, and I will begin in verse 1 of Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Thy name in all the earth, who hast displayed Thy splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing bays Thou hast established strength because of thine adversaries, to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. Do you hear what the psalmist is doing here in these first couple of verses? He's establishing the glory of God, the magnificence of God, who God is as God, the Creator. The one who's done all of this in the earth. And everything is attributed to this great and mighty and holy God. And then here's the question. In the light of God, in the light of who God is, in the light of the magnificence of God, what is man that thou dost take thought of him and the son of man that thou dost care for? God, we're nothing but dust. Sinful men, sinful women, why do you think of us? Let alone send your Son. Have Him live a spotless, perfect, sinless life and then die on a cross. And then fortunately, and 
wonderfully raised from the dead. But God, why all of this? Why did you do all this? What is man that you're mindful of him? Who are we that you would think of us? That's a good question. Unfortunately, today, people don't even think of it that way. Today, it's more like, God, why don't you do more for me? How come you're not doing this for me? Instead of realizing yourself in your sinfulness and and who you are as a man, who you are as a woman, but dust and in humility saying, Oh, God, why would you do all of this? Why would you send your Son to pay my sin debt and redeem me? Who am I, oh God, that you should do such a thing? All that was done for us through Christ, the crowning achievement of redemption being His death, burial, and resurrection. Oh God, why would You do this? Now with these thoughts in mind, I want to have us turn our attention to the first answer to this question. And in the whole matter of why would God do these things? Why would God do this? The first question I would like to answer is, why redemption? Why redemption? And it's not, why was redemption necessary? I'm going to believe that we all understand that. That man has fallen in Adam, sinful and alienated from God at enmity with God and needed to be redeemed. But that's not the question. Not why was redemption necessary, but why did God do it at all? Why did God do anything for man? And before we turn from this psalm, notice that we are talking about man. Verse 5, Thou hast made him a little lower than God and didst crown him with glory and majesty. We're talking about man. Man that has a soul. Man created in the image of God. God, why did you do this? Why is there an Easter? Why redemption? And I believe that I have two answers that should take in All of it. And the first one is out of His mercy. Out of His mercy. For this, please turn to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. We turn here to this psalm and we're going to see, first of all, that the psalmist praises God. In verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 103, The psalmist, being David, says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. He's bringing praise to God as he says, Bless the Lord. The the Hebrew word bless, by the way, uh, actually comes from the root to kneel. To kneel before one. And so it is a type of blessing. It is an extension of praise. So he speaks of blessing and he speaks of it coming from his soul. From all that is within me. So he speaks about blessing God from his innermost being his soul. And that's why I mentioned what we saw in Psalm 8. That we're talking about man. 
Man and man alone is created body and soul. Only man has a soul. Remember, we read in Genesis chapter 2 that God formed man out of the dust of the earth and breathed into him the breath of life. Man is a soul. Man is created in the image of God. Man and only man of all creation is able to have the attributes, the communicable attributes of God, such as love, wisdom, and communication so we can read His Word, so that we can understand His Word, and so that we can respond to Him in love. Man has a soul. And so from that soul, from its innermost being, the psalmist praises God. Bless the Lord. Now, God as God doesn't need to be blessed. It's not like He needs something that He doesn't have from us. So, in this, he's not really talking so much as giving him something. It is an expression of praise and thanksgiving for all that God has done. It is a form of worship to say that we bless God. It's not that we're giving or bestowing some kind of good thing or blessing that God didn't have on him from us. We're, we're so great that we can somehow bless God. No, it is a form of praise adoration, worship. We bless God from our hearts, from our souls, from our innermost beings as He is God and has done so much for us. This is what the psalmist is saying. The next thing we see that the psalmist does is the reason for his praising God. Pick up in verse 3. Who pardons all your iniquities who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. But focus in on what he says, who pardons your iniquities. The psalmist knew who he was as a man. A sinner. One who commits iniquities. And he praises God for pardoning his sin. For pardoning his iniquity. All that you have done in your life which is contrary to his law. Which falls short of his holiness. And goodness. All that you have done. The psalmist says, who pardons all your iniquities. And then he speaks of him redeeming them from the pit. That's great language. Redeeming them from the pit. Any of you ever read uh, Pilgrim's Progress and you see pilgrim in the slough of despond. And he's brought up out of the slough of despond. One of the problems with some of that, as Spurgeon said, was it came before the cross. The cross should have come sooner. But still, we get that imagery in our minds that sometimes we feel as though we are in the pit. And believe me, that lost man is in the pit. The pit of judgment. As 
Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, all that keeps them from falling into the flames of hell are the hands of the gracious God. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. All he has to do is open his hands and they fall forever into the pit. But for us, He has redeemed us from that. He has redeemed us from the pit. From the right judgment of God Himself. God has redeemed us. This is what He's talking about. As this is why he's praising God, because God delivered him from the grave, from the pit that we rightly deserved. I wonder sometimes if you think you're so far above that now, as a Christian, that you can never, you can't, you're not a sinner anymore. That's heresy, folks. We're all sinners. And he, has delivered you. He has redeemed you. He has rescued you from the pit of judgment. You cannot do it yourself. You as a sinful man are incapable. You're a sinner yourself. How could you redeem yourself? It's impossible. So He has done it. So we could say, only God can forgive your sin because your sin is is against God alone. So, since we're sinners against God, God is the only one who can forgive us our sin. God is the one who redeems us. And this is what the psalmist is talking about. Only God can forgive your sins. You remember that this was one of the arguments that the Jews had against Jesus? Real quick, turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Here we have a situation where our Lord Jesus heals a man who had been brought before Him. But before He heals him, the multitude lets Him down. They dug a hole in the opening of the roof and they let the pallet down in front of Jesus. And in verse 5, Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. And what did the Jews say? Wait, wait a minute. They were the the scribes that were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, what does this man speak? Well, what's he saying? This is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Only God can forgive sins. And you know what? They were right. They were right. And the answer is, Jesus was God. And that's why Jesus says to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise and take up your pallet and walk? Which is easier to say? You know what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven. That's a lot easier to say. Nobody can see that. But to prove that I am the Son of God who has the ability to forgive sins, I say to you, take up your pallet and walk. And He did. That's hard to do. It's easy to say your sins are forgiven. But Jesus, being God, could forgive. We'll get into more of that in our study of 
Him as our propitiation. But back to Psalm 103. The psalmist here again is saying that only God is the one who can redeem me from my iniquity, pardon my iniquity and redeem me from the pit. And He has done so. So He's praising God. Bless the Lord. Oh my soul, You have redeemed me. So David praising God for the forgiveness of his redemption. Now beginning in verse 4, we see the reason that God does so. We see the reason that God pardons sins. We see the reason that God redeems. Why redemption? Here's the reason. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Why does God redeem you? Why did God do all of this? Why did God send His Son? Why did God cause His Son to be crucified and give up His life and even pour out the wrath that I deserve upon His Son on the cross? Why did God do that? First answer, love. Out of His own mercy. His own love and His own mercy. Redemption is God's crowning gift to man. The greatest blessing that God could give. All that we have comes from God. But redemption is the crown. Redemption is the pinnacle. Redemption is God's greatest gift. And redemption comes from His loving kindness and compassion. There is nothing that you could have done to make yourself worthy of God's redemption. Sinners all. Nothing we can do to clean ourselves up to make ourselves appealing to God. To make ourselves look good to God. Oh God, look at me. I'm a good guy. Redeem me. No. It is out of His love. Out of His mercy. Out of His compassion. His love, His mercy is undeserved, unmerited. And comes from His sovereign will alone. His compassion as He looks upon us as uh, sinners and has, instead of disdain, sympathy, compassion. What joy ought to be ours as those who recognize the depth of our sin and realize that the depth of His mercy is even greater. Remember that hymn we sang, Depth of Mercy. Can there be mercy still reserved for me? Oh, His mercy runs deep. His compassion is true. And He looks upon us and redeems us in His sovereignty. No wonder the psalmist praises Him in the first couple of verses. Oh, God, You've redeemed me out of Your love and compassion. He forgives and He pardons. 
The word, uh, by the way, there in verse 4 where it says that he redeems, it has to do with propitiation. A turning away of the wrath of God. So if God's wrath is set upon you as a lost individual, Christ comes, forgives your sin, and the wrath of God is turned away from you. Propitiation. You are redeemed. Your sin penalty paid for. And it comes, as it says, from His love. And now, the psalmist David goes on for several verses following to give a clearer picture of what God has done. So, we'll look at a couple of these. As he says, first of all, in verse 8. In verse 8, as we read it, he says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. Does this sound familiar? Because he's almost quoting, if you look back to Exodus chapter 34, Exodus chapter 34, Moses had said to God, God, I want to see you. I want to behold your glory. So God takes Moses and He sets him in the cleft of the rock, as we say. And He passes by in front of Moses. And remember, He puts His hand so that Moses can't see. And all He sees is His hind parts. His back, as it were. And how does Moses describe God? As he passes by. How does Moses describe the glory of God as he passes by? What picture does he paint in the Scriptures of what God's glory was like? None. He doesn't tell us at all. What he tells us is what God said. And the Lord, this is verse 5, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him, and he called, as he called upon the name of the Lord, then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. This is who God is. Abounding in loving kindness. It is part of His very being. It is one of His attributes. His loving kindness. It's a good thing. It's a good thing that God does not immediately wipe us out for our sins. For it says in verse 7, who keeps loving kindness for thousands and who forgives iniquities, transgressions, and sins. Now, notice that it does say, though, that yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Let's go back to our verse in Psalm 103. Because the psalmist says the same thing. In verse 8 of Psalm 103, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. Do you notice that word, that phrase, 
slow to anger. Slow to anger. Do you realize it doesn't say that God is never angry? It doesn't say that God never gets angry. It doesn't say that God will never be angry and judge you for your sin. It says slow to anger. The, the very term has a built-in time limit. And for some, the limit is up. And God brings judgment. He's slow to anger, but not never to anger. God will bring vengeance upon the sinners. But yet, we look at Him today and we consider His love and His compassion that He has redeemed us. Now, again, verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heaven is above the earth, so great is His loving kindness towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far He has removed our transgressions from us. What a wonderful picture. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins and our iniquities. And that was what we read in Psalm 130. And I said we'd get back to it, but we can't. We don't have time. But in Psalm 130, remember, he said, If thou should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Thankfully, thankfully, he does not deal with us according to our iniquities. But rather, he puts them as far away as the east is from the west. And you know why he doesn't put them as far as the north is from the south? Because there's a north pole and there is a south pole, a definitive spot. But there is no definitive east and there is no definitive west. They're just gone. As far as, as the east is from the west, wherever you go, there's always an east and there's always a west. You can get to the north pole or the south pole, but you can't get to the east pole or the west pole. And then he says in verse 13, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. Here again is a great picture of the compassion of a father toward a child. And this is what God has toward us. Even if your child sins, even if your child disobeys, you still love. You still care. You still nurture. And when it's God, He redeems. A father has compassion on his son and does whatever he can for his son. God has compassion on his children and does whatever is necessary for his children. And that was redemption through Christ. See, his is perfect. We're imperfect. But his love manifests itself in a perfect redemption. And then verse 17 but the loving kindness of the Lord is everlasting to everlasting to those who fear Him. It will never wear out. It will never go away. God's love for His children is everlasting. Here and here alone is the basis 
for our redemption out of the mercy of God. His love, His mercy, His redemption, His forgiveness is full and free and it is undeserved, unearned. You can't gain it. You don't deserve it. And it is through His loving kindness. Daniel read the Scriptures a little earlier from Isaiah chapter 63. In verse 9 it says, In His love and in His mercy He redeemed them. In His love and in His mercy He redeems us. If you would please turn briefly to the book of Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. I just want to look at two verses here. The last chapter of Micah. Look what it says in verse 18. Who is a God like thee who pardons iniquities and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of His possession? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in unchanging or unfailing love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, Thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Some people don't even know where the book of Micah is. And they miss such a wonderful passage regarding the love and the compassion of God in dealing with men's sins by redeeming us. Now back to Psalm 103 for just a brief more moment. Psalm 103, as the psalmist has said all of these things, throughout the passage, what he has said has been qualified. In verse 11, notice what he says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness towards those who fear Him. Verse 13, Just as the Father has compassion on His children, so the Father has compassion on those who fear Him. Verse 17, But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. What is that? There are those who understand the reverence and the awe of who God is. You know, the, the term fear in the Scriptures has a dual meaning. One, the one that everybody likes to point to, is reverence and awe. And that's true and right. But it's also be afraid of the God who will judge you for your sin. There is an element of fear when you're dealing with the living God. But oh, He says, your loving kindness, your mercy, your pardon, your compassion is to those who fear you. Who have awe and reverence. Who have been shown mercy. And notice what He says in verse 18. To those who keep His covenant and who remember His precepts to do that. His covenant Keeping people, he says, are those who receive his compassion and his redemption. I wanted to go to such places as Romans chapter 9 and 
I think I will take just a moment to see that text because it means so much in relation to His redemption. In Romans chapter 9 and in verse 18, I can't even wait for you to catch up to me. And it says, So then He has mercy on whom He desires, and He hardens whom He desires. He shows His compassion. And He shows His mercy. Keep a marker there. We're going to come back to that. Because we have seen here from the Scriptures that He will have compassion and mercy on those whom He pleases. He is the sovereign God of grace as we read in Ephesians chapter 1 that He chose a people in Him from before the foundation of the world to lavish upon them His mercy and His grace and His compassion. And in Ephesians chapter 2, we read of Him saying that it is out of mercy and grace that He plucked us from the dead and made us to be alive. It is all by His mercy and all by His grace that we even come to be a people who fear Him, who have reverence for Him, and to follow His ways. But I must hasten on, otherwise I will not get to the second answer to the question, why did God redeem? Why redemption? The first answer, plain and simple, is out of His mercy. He had no reason to look on us with love and compassion and redeem us, but He did out of His mercy. The second answer is unto His glory. Out of His mercy and unto His glory. For this I invite you to turn to John chapter 12. The Gospel of John in chapter 12. And here we see our Lord Jesus as He approached the purpose for which He came. John chapter 12, look down to verse 27. Jesus says in what is known as His last public discourse, now, verse 27, My soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Here He is. Approaching the time. His hour has come. Approaching the time for the the purpose for which He came. The reason that He was born. That whole complex that we call His passion as He accomplished the work of redemption, as in hours He will be arrested, He will be persecuted, mocked, He will be taken and He will be scourged, beaten, spat upon, mocked, ridiculed, punched, crown of thorns on His head, blood everywhere, tried by men who were nothing more than opportunist religionist leaders. Sinful men judging the very God of heaven incarnate. And then after that, 
And after these mock trials and these beatings, He would hang upon a cross. This is the hour for which He had come. Redemption of His people. And look what He says. Verse 28. Father, glorify Thy name. And there came therefore a voice out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus Christ to the Father. Get glory from this work that I am about to accomplish. Glorify Your name. And an audible response from heaven from the Father. I think it's interesting. I'm not sure. Some of you may. Some of you may not. But uh, some have Bibles where the words of Jesus are in red. I don't like that. Here we have the words of the Father and they don't deserve to be in red. The Father says from heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The redemption of Jesus the Son brings glory to God the Father. First reason for redemption, His mercy. Second reason for redemption, it brings glory to God. The redemption of the people of God brings glory to Him. We're going to see how in a few more moments. But that which we will celebrate in a few more weeks, the death, burial, and then the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the act of Jesus accomplishing redemption, glorifies God. The Son always brings glory to the Father. And the resurrection is proof that the Son glorified the Father in doing all that the Father sent Him to do. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that the resurrection showed Him to be the Son of God with power. It is God's Amen to the work of Christ in redemption. Christ glorifies the Father in His work. The resurrection is the proof that He has done so. And so here in John chapter 12, as He approached that time for His purpose, Christ glorifies the Son. So, why did God do all that He did in redemption? Out of mercy and unto His glory. But look at another text just over the page in chapter 13. We're at what we call the Last Supper. But we look down to verse 31. When therefore He had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. 
If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him immediately. And so he's speaking about this. After this table, he leaves and goes forth and says, now I'm going to glorify the Father. God is going to be glorified in Him. God will also glorify Him. This is, again, as Jesus was going forth to His passion at the hour of redemption. God will be glorified in the work of the Son as He redeemed His people. One last stop here in John. Look over to chapter 17. We are in the home stretch. John chapter 17. This is the Lord's prayer. And so as He prays for His people, as He approached His purpose, as He approached the hour for His passion, and as He prays for His people, here's what He says. These things Jesus spoke, verse 1, and lifting up His eyes to heaven, He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Thy Son, that Thy Son may glorify Thee. The hour has come. Glorify Thy Son. Even as Thou gavest Him authority over all mankind, that to all whom Thou hast given Him, He may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. I glorified Thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which Thou hast given Me to do, and now glorify Thou Me, together with Thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with Thee before the world was. So here's Jesus saying to God the Father, I'm going forth to the cross. Glorify Me. I am going to glorify You. It is, again, as we saw in verse 4, as He accomplished the work of redemption. Now, I want to return to that passage I just brushed over too quickly as we draw this to a close found in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. I wanted to mention previously in verses 14 and following that he says in verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is what God says that He will do. And then some people may complain, well, why does He, uh, why does he do this? How will he find fault? For who can resist his will? And then Paul says in verse 20, On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why have you made me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And He did so in order that He might make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory even us who are called 
not from among Jews only, but from among Gentiles. Do you hear what he's saying? Even in the judgment of the lost, God is glorified. As He sends the lost sinful men who would not fear Him, who would not obey Him, who would not follow Him, who would not love Jesus, His Son, as He consigns them to fiery hell in that pit, He is glorified in those whom He saved. In those upon whom He had mercy. You become the vessels who glorify God as you show His mercy. As you show His grace. God is glorified through His people even as He judges the lost. There's the difference, you see, between His love and His compassion and His justice. And the difference is you. You are the ones who bring glory to God as He saves you by His grace. So often today we live in a world where people give their testimonies and they say such things as, I came forward and I did this and I repented and I, I, I. Instead of God, God, God. Took a lost, worthless, sinful man. And out of His love and mercy and grace, blessed me with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places chose me in Him from before the foundation of the world, that I would be holy and blameless before Him in love, predestined me to adoption and lavished upon me all of His grace. And in Him I have my redemption through the blood of His Son, Jesus. For those of you who may not know, I was really quoting Ephesians chapter 1. This is what God has done for you. Not what you have done for Him, but what He has done for you. What privileged people we are. What a wonder it is to see ourselves as sinners and then saved, redeemed, by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed by Christ Jesus. Because of His work. Because of what He has done. Out of His love and unto His glory. If you're here today and you're saved, it is not by the works that you have done, but it is by the love of God the mercy of God. And it is and will be unto His glory. Hallelujah.
What a Savior. Let's pray.